0: The habit of introspection, of probing with honesty and clarity the depths and contours of our imperfect souls is a practice to which we've become unaccustomed. In recent years, we've fallen away from the titillating act of Assaying ourselves, if only better to judge our follies and count our shortcomings. Perhaps our avoidance to do so is attributable to fear. Perhaps, if not that, then to incuriosity and a simple, animal tendency, not to subject ourselves to sincere exploration. Michel de Montaigne, subtlest and most profound of our writers to whom, till this day, the French nation has done us the good favor to give birth, was neither incurious nor fearful. Quite the opposite, in fact. His curiosity was, in truth, intrepidity of the noblest kind. There was no subject about which he dared not inquire, and he was never unwilling to unbosom himself. Stripped of all affectation, and exposed to the light and judgment of the day. Montaigne is so compelling because, well, he's so candid. He's completely unafraid to examine himself and, having peeked into the dark recesses of every corner, to present his findings to an opinionated world. He's as self conscious, or more accurately, as self aware and deprecating a writer as ever there's been. One wholly unashamed of his fallibility and his weakness. Yet, despite his eloquent professions to ignorance and sin, We find in his essays nothing but virtue and genius. Michel Le Montaigne, on the art of conversation. Tis a custom of our justice. To condemn some for a warning to others. To condemn them for having done amiss were folly, as Plato says. For what is done can never be undone. But tis to the end they may offend no more and That others may avoid the example of their offense We do not correct the man we hang We correct others by him I do the same. My errors are sometimes natural, incorrigible, and irremediable. But the good which virtuous men do to the public in making themselves imitated I, peradventure, may do in making my manners avoided. Publishing and accusing my own imperfections, someone will learn to be afraid of them that I most esteem in myself derive more honor from decrying than for commending myself, which is the reason why I so often fall into and so much insist upon that strain. But when all is summed up A man never speaks of himself without loss. A man's accusations of himself are always believed. His praises never. There may peradventure be some of my own complexion who better instruct myself by contriety than by similitude and by avoiding than by imitation. The elder Cato was regarding this sort of discipline when he said, that the wise may learn more of fools than fools can of the wise. And Pausanias tells us of an ancient player upon the harp, who was wont to make his scholars go to hear one who played very ill, who lived over against him, that they might learn to hate his discords and false measures. The horror of cruelty more inclines me to clemency than any example of clemency could possibly do. A good rider does not so much mend my seat as an awkward attorney or a Venetian on horseback. And a clownish way of speaking more reforms mine than the most correct. The ridiculous and simple look of another always warns and advises me. That which pricks, rouses, and incites much better than that which tickles. The time is now proper for us to reform backward, more by dissenting than by agreeing, by differing more than by consent. Profiting little by good examples, I make use of those that are ill, which are everywhere to be found. I endeavor to render myself as agreeable as I see others offensive, as constant as I see others fickle, as affable as I see others rough, as good as I see others evil. But I propose to myself Impracticable Measures. The most fruitful and natural exercise of the mind, in my opinion, is conversation. I find the use of it more sweet than of any other action of life. And for that reason, it is that if I were now compelled to choose, I should sooner, I think, consent to lose my sight than my hearing and speech. The Athenians and also the Romans kept this exercise in great honor in their academies. The Italians retain some traces of it to this day, to their great advantage, as is manifest by the comparison of our understandings with theirs. The study of books is a languishing and feeble motion that heats not, whereas conversation teaches and exercises at once. If I converse with a strong mind in a rough disputant, he presses upon my flanks and pricks me right and left. His imaginations stir up mine Jealousy, glory, and contention Stimulate and raise me up to something quite above myself And acquiescence is a quality altogether tedious in discourse But As our mind fortifies itself by the communication of vigorous and regular understandings, tis not to be expressed how much it loses and degenerates by the continual commerce and familiarity we have with mean and weak spirits. There is no contagion that spreads like that. I know sufficiently by experience what is worth the yard. I love to discourse and dispute, but it is with but few men and for myself. For to do it as a spectacle And entertainment To great persons And to make of a man's Wit and words Competitive parade Is, in my opinion Very unbecoming A man of honor Folly is a bad quality. But not to be able to endure it, to fret and vex at it, as I do, is another sort of disease, little less troublesome than folly itself. And is the thing that I will now accuse in myself. I enter into conference and dispute with great liberty and facility for as much as opinion meets in me with a soil very unfit for penetration and wherein to take any deep root. No propositions astonish me No belief offends me, though never so contrary to my own. There is no so frivolous and extravagant fancy that does not seem to me suitable to the production of human wit. We, who deprive our judgment of the right of determining, Look indifferently upon the diverse opinions. And if we incline not our judgment to them, Yet we easily give them the hearing. Where one scale is totally empty, I let the other waver under an old wife's dreams. And I think myself excusable if I prefer the odd number, Thursday rather than Friday, if I had rather be the twelfth or fourteenth than the thirteenth at table, if I had rather, on a journey, see a hare run by me than cross my way and rather give my man my left foot than my right when he comes to put on my stockings. All such reveries as are in credit around us deserve at least a hearing. For my part they only with me import ananity But they import that. Moreover. Vulgar and casual opinions are. Something more than nothing in nature. And he who will not. Suffer himself to proceed so far. Falls. Peradventure. Into the vice. Of obstinacy. To avoid that of superstition The contradictions of judgments then Neither offend nor alter They only rouse and exorcise me We evade correction whereas we ought to offer and present ourselves to it, especially when it appears in the form of conference and not of authority. At every opposition, we do not consider whether or no it be dust, but right or wrong, how to disengage ourselves. Instead of extending the arms, we thrust out our claws. I could suffer myself to be rudely handled by my friend. So much as to tell me that I am a fool. And talk I know not of what. I love stout expressions amongst gentle men and to have them speak as they think. We must fortify and harden our hearing against this tenderness of the ceremonious sound of words. I love a strong and manly familiarity in conversation, a friendship that pleases itself in the sharpness and vigor of its communication, like love in biting and scratching. It is not vigorous and generous enough, if it be not quarrelsome, if it be civilized and artificial, if it treads nicely and fears the shock. When anyone contradicts me, he raises my attention, not my anger. I advance towards him who controverts, who instructs me. The cause of truth ought to be the common cause both of the one and of the other. What will the angry man answer? Passion has already confounded his judgment. Agitation has usurped the place of reason. It were not amiss that the decision of our disputes should pass by wager. There might be a material mark of our losses. To the end we might the better remember them. And that my man might tell me. Your ignorance and obstinacy cost you last year at several times a hundred crowns. I hail and caress truth in what quarter soever I find it and cheerfully surrender myself and open my conquered arms as far off as I can discover it. And provided it be not too imperiously, take a pleasure in being reproved and accommodate myself to my accusers very often more by reason of civility than amendment, loving to gratify and nourish the liberty of admonition by the facility of submitting to it, and this even at my own expense. Nevertheless, it is hard to bring the men of my time to it. They have not the courage to correct because they have not the courage to suffer themselves to be corrected and speak always with dissimulation in the presence of one another. I take so great a pleasure in being judged and known, that it is almost indifferent to me in which of the two forms I am so. My imagination so often contradicts and condemns itself, that tis all one to me if another do it, especially considering that I give his reprehension no greater authority than I choose But I break with him Who carries himself so high As I know of one who repents his advice If not believed And takes it for an affront If it be not immediately followed That Socrates always received smilingly the contradictions offered to his arguments, a man may say arose from his strength of reason. And that, the advantage being certain to fall on his side, he accepted them as a matter of new victory. But we see, on the contrary, that nothing in argument renders our sentiment so delicate as the opinion of preeminence and disdain of the adversary. And that, in reason, it is rather for the weaker to take in good part the Oppositions that correct him and set him right. In earnest, I rather choose the company of those who ruffle me than of those who fear me. Tis a dull and hurtful pleasure to have to do with people who admire us and approve of all we say. Antisthenes commanded his children never to take it kindly or for a favor when any man commended them. I find I am much prouder of the victory I obtained over myself when, in the very ardor of dispute, I make myself submit to my adversary's force of reason, and that I am pleased with the victory I obtain over him through his weakness. In fine, I receive and admit, of all manner of attacks that are direct, how weak soever, But I am too impatient of those that are made out of form. I care not what the subject is. The opinions are to me all one. And I am almost indifferent whether I get the better or the worse. I can peaceably argue a whole day together. If the argument be carried on with method I do not so much require force and subtlety as order. I mean the order which we every day observe in the wranglings of shepherds and shop boys, but never amongst us. If they start from their subject, tis out of incivility. And so tis with us. But their tumult and impatience never put them out of their theme. Their argument still continues its course. If they interrupt, they do not stay for one another. They at least understand one another. And one answers too well for me if he answers what I say. When the dispute is irregular and disordered, I leave the thing itself and insist upon the form with anger and indiscretion, falling into willful, malicious, and imperious way of disputation of which I am afterwards ashamed. It is impossible to deal fairly with a fool. My judgment is not only corrupted under the hand of so impetuous a master but my conscience also Our disputes ought to be interdicted and punished as well as other verbal crimes What vice do they not raise and heap up being always governed and commanded by passion. We first quarrel with their reasons, and then with the men. We only learn to dispute, that we may contradict. And so, everyone contradicting and being contradicted it falls out that the fruit of disputation is to lose and annihilate truth. Therefore, it is that Plato in his Republic prohibits this exercise to fools and ill-bred people. To what end do you go about to inquire of him? who knows nothing to the purpose. A man does no injury to the subject when he leaves it to seek how he may treat it. I do not mean by an artificial and scholastic way, but by a natural one with a sound understanding. What will it be in the end? One flies to the east, the other to the west. They lose the principle, dispersing it in the crowd of incidents after an hour of tempest. They know not what they seek. One is low, the other high, and a third wide. One catches at a word. a simile. Another is no longer sensible of what is said in opposition to him, and thinks only of going on at his own rate, not of answering you. Another, finding himself too weak to make good his rest, fears all, refuses all, at the very beginning, confounds the subject, or, in the very uh, height of the dispute, stop short and is silent by a peevish ignorance affecting a proud contempt or a foolishly modest avoidance of further debate. Provided this man strikes He cares not how much he lays himself open. The other counts his words and weighs them for reasons. Another only brawls and uses the advantage of his lungs. Here's one who learnedly concludes against himself and another who deafens you with prefaces and senseless digressions. Another falls into downright railing and seeks a quarrel after the German fashion to disengage himself from a wit that presses too hard upon him. And a last man sees nothing into the reason of the thing but draws a line of circumvallation about you of dialectic clauses and the formulas of his art Now who would not enter into distrust of sciences in doubt whether he can reap from them any solid fruit for the service of life, considering the use we put them to. Who has got understanding by his logic? Where are all her fair promises? Is there more noise or confusion in the scolding of herring wives than in the public disputes of men of this profession? I had rather my son should learn in a tap house to speak than in the schools to prate. Take a master of arts and confer with him. Why does he not make us sensible of this artificial excellence? And why does he not captivate women and ignoramuses, as we are, with admiration at the steadiness of his reasons and the beauty of his order? Why does he not sway and persuade us to what he will? Why does a man, who has so much advantage in matter and treatment, mix railing, indiscretion, and fury in his disputations, strip him of his gown, his hood, and his Latin, let him not Batter our ears with Aristotle, pure and simple. You will take him for one of us, or worse. Whilst they torment us with this complication and confusion of words, it fares with them, methinks, as with jugglers, their... Dexterity imposes upon our senses, but does not at all work upon our belief, this legerdemain accepted. They perform nothing that is not very ordinary and mean. For being the more learned, they are none the less fools I love and honor knowledge as much as they have it. And in its true use, tis the most noble and greatest acquisition of men. But in such as I speak of, and the number of them is infinite, who build their fundamental sufficiency and value upon it, who appeal from their understanding to their memory, sheltering under the shadow of others. And who can do nothing but by book? I hate it, if I dare to say so. Worse than stupidity. In my country and in my time, learning improves fortunes enough, but not minds. If it meet with those that are dull and heavy, it overcharges and suffocates them, leaving them a crude and undigested mass. If airy and fine, it purifies, clarifies. Subtilizes them even to ex inanition It is a thing of almost indifferent quality, a very useful accession to a well-born soul, but hurtful and pernicious to others, or rather a thing of very precious use that will not suffer itself to be purchased at an under rate. In the hand of some, it is a scepter. In that of others, a fool's bauble. But let us proceed. What greater victory Do you expect then to make your enemy see and know that he is not able to encounter you? When you get the better of your argument, tis truth that wins. When you get the advantage of form and method, tis then you who win. I am of opinion that in Plato and Xenophon, Socrates disputes more in favor of the disputants than in favor of the dispute, and more to instruct Euthydemus and Protagoras in the knowledge of their impertinence than in the impertinence of their art. He takes hold of the first subject like one who has a more profitable end than to explain it, namely to clear the understandings that he takes upon him to instruct and exercise. To hunt after truth is properly our business, and we are inexcusable if we carry on the chase impertinently and ill. To fail of seizing it is another thing, for we are born to inquire after truth. It belongs to a greater power to possess it. It is not, as Democritus said, hid in the bottom of the deeps, but rather elevated to an infinite height in the divine knowledge. The world is but a school of inquisition. It is not who shall enter the ring, but who shall run the best courses. He may as well play the fool who speaks true as he who speaks false for we are upon the manner, not the matter of speaking. Tis my humor as much to regard the form as the substance, and the advocate as much as the cause, as Alcibiades ordered we should. And every day pass away my time in reading authors without any consideration of their learning. Their manner is what I look after, not their subject. And just so do I hunt after the conversation of any eminent wit. Not that he may teach me, but that I may know him. And that knowing him, if I think him worthy of imitation, I may imitate him. Every man may speak truly, but to speak methodically, prudently, and fully is a talent that few men have. The falsity that proceeds from ignorance does not offend me, but the foppery of it. I have broken off several treaties that would have been of advantage to me by reason of the impertinent contestations of those with whom I am treated. I am not moved once in a year at the faults of those over whom I have authority, but upon the account of the ridiculous obstinacy of their allegations, denials, excuses. We are every day going together by the years. They neither understand what is said, nor why, and answer accordingly. It is enough to drive a man mad. I never feel any hurt upon my head, but when tis knocked against another, and more easily forgive the vices of my servants than their boldness, importunity, and folly. Let them do less, provided they understand what they do. You live in hope to warm their affection to your service, but there is nothing to be had or to be expected from a stock. But what, if I take things otherwise than they are? Perhaps I do. And therefore it is that I accuse my own impatience and hold, in the first place, that it is equally vicious both in him that is in the right and in him that is in the wrong, For it is always a tyrannic sourness not to endure a form contrary to one's own. And besides, there cannot, in truth, be a greater, more constant, nor more irregular folly than to be moved and angry at the follies of the world. For it principally makes us quarrel with ourselves. And the old philosopher never wanted an occasion for his tears whilst he considered himself. Miso, one of the seven sages, of a demonian and democritic humour, being asked what he laughed at, being alone that I do laugh alone, answered he How many ridiculous things, in my own opinion Do I say and answer every day that comes over my head And then how many more, according to the opinion of others If I bite my own lips What ought others to do? In fine, we must live amongst the living and let the river run under the bridge without our care or, at least, without our interference. In truth, why do we meet a man with a hunchback or any other deformity? without being moved, and cannot endure the encounter of a deformed mind without being angry. This vicious sourness sticks more to the judge than to the crime. Let us always have this saying of Plato in our mouths. Do not I think things unsound? Because I am not sound in myself. Am I not myself in fault? May not my observations reflect upon myself? A wise and divine saying that lashes the most universal and common error of mankind. Not only the reproaches that we may throw in the face of one another, but our reasons also. Our arguments and controversies are reboundable upon us. And we wound ourselves with our own weapons, of which antiquity has left me enough grave examples. It was ingeniously and home-said by him, who was the inventor of this sentence, To every man his own excrement smells well. We see nothing behind us. We mock ourselves a hundred times a day when we deride our neighbors. And we detest in others the defects which are most manifest in us, and which we admire with marvellous inadvertency and impudence. It was but yesterday that I heard a man of understanding and of good rank, as pleasantly as justly scoffing at the folly of another, who did nothing but torment everybody with the catalogue of his genealogy and alliances, above half of them false for they are most apt to fall into such ridiculous discourses whose qualities are most dubious and least sure. And yet, would he have looked into himself? He would have discerned himself to be no less intemperate and wearisome in extolling his wife's pedigree. O importunate presumption! with which the wife sees herself armed by the hands of her own husband. I do not say that no man should accuse another who is not clean himself, for then no one would ever accuse clean from the same sort of spot. But I mean that our judgment. Falling upon another, who is then in question, should not, at the same time, spare ourselves, but sentence us with an inward and severe authority. Tis an office of charity, that he who cannot reclaim himself from a vice should, nevertheless, endeavor to remove it from another, in whom, peradventure, it may not have so deep and so malignant a root. Neither to him who reproves me for my fault, that he himself is guilty of the same. What of that? The reproof is, notwithstanding, true and of very good use, Had we a good nose, our own odor would stink worse to us, for as much as it is our own. And Socrates is of opinion that whoever should find himself, his son, in a stranger guilty of any violence and wrong, ought to begin with himself, present himself first to the sentence of justice, and implore, To purge himself The assistance of the hand Of the executioner In the next place He should proceed to his son And lastly To the stranger If this precept Seemed too severe He ought at least to present himself The first the punishment of his own conscience. The senses are our first and proper judges, which perceive not things but by external accidents. It is no wonder if in all the parts of the service of our society there is so perpetual and universal a mixture of ceremonies and superficial appearances insomuch that the best and most effectual part of our polities therein consist. Tis still man with whom we have to do, of whom the condition is wonderfully corporal. Let those who, of these late years, would erect for us such a contemplative and immaterial in exercise of religion, not wonder if there be some who think it had vanished and melted through their fingers, had it not more upheld itself among us as a mark, title, an instrument of division and faction, than by itself. As in conference, the gravity, robe, fortune of him who speaks, oftentimes gives reputation to vain arguments and idle words. It is not to be presumed but that a man, so attended and feared, has not in him more than ordinary sufficiency, that he to whom the king has given so many offices and commissions and charges, he so supercilious and proud, There's not a great deal more in him than another who salutes him at so great a distance, and who has no employment at all. Not only the words, but the grimaces also of the people are considered and put into the account. Everyone making it his business to give them some fine and solid interpretation if they stoop to the common conference and that you offer anything but approbation and reverence they then knock you down with the authority of their experience they've heard they've seen they've done so and so you are crushed with examples I should willingly tell them that the fruit of a surgeon's experience is not the history of his practice and his remembering that he has cured four people of the plague and three of the gout unless he knows how thence to extract something whereon to form his judgment and to make us sensible that he has thence become more skillful in his art. As in a concert of instruments, we do not hear a lute, a harpsichord, or a flute alone, but one entire harmony, the result of all together. If travel and offices have improved them, it is a product of their understanding to make it appear. Tis not enough to reckon experiences They must weigh, sort, and distill them To extract the reasons and conclusions they carry along with them There were never so many historians It is, indeed, good and of use to read them For they furnish us everywhere with excellent and laudable instructions from the magazine of their memory, which, doubtless, is of great concern to the help of life. But tis not that we seek for now. We examine whether these relators and collectors of things are commendable themselves. I hate all sorts of tyranny, both in word and deed. I am very ready to oppose myself against those vain circumstances that delude our judgments by the senses. In keeping my eye close upon those extraordinary greatnesses, I find that at best they are men as others are. For in those high fortunes, common sense is generally rare. Peradventure, we esteem and look upon them for less than they are, by reason they undertake more, and more expose themselves. They do not answer to the charge they have undertaken. There must be more vigor and strength in the bearer than in the burden. He who has not lifted as much as he can leaves you to guess that he has still a strength beyond that, that he has not been tried to the utmost of what he is able to do. He who sinks under his load makes a discovery of his best and the weakness of his shoulders. This is the reason that we see so many silly souls amongst the learned, and more than those of the better sort. They would have made good husbandmen, good merchants, and good artists. Their natural vigor was cut out to that proportion. Knowledge is a thing of great weight. They faint under it. Their understanding has neither vigor nor dexterity enough to set forth and distribute, to employ or make use of this rich and powerful matter. It has no prevailing virtue, but in a strong nature. And such natures are rare. And the weak ones, says Socrates, corrupt the dignity of philosophy in the handling. It appears useless and vicious when lodged in an ill-contrived mind. They spoil and make fools of themselves. Neither is it enough for those who govern and command us and have all the world in their hands to have a common understanding and to be able to do the same that we can. They are very much below us if they be not infinitely above us. As they promise more, so they are to perform more. And yet, silence is to them, not only a countenance of respect and gravity, but very often of good advantage, too. For Megabezus, going to see Apels in his painting room, stood a great while without speaking a word, and at last began to talk of his paintings, for which he received this rude reproof whilst thou wast silent thou seemest to be some great thing by reason of thy chains and rich habit but now that we have heard thee speak there is not the meanest boy in my workshop that does not despise thee those princely ornaments That mighty state did not permit him to be ignorant with a common ignorance, and to speak impertinently of painting. He ought to have kept this external and presumptive knowledge by silence. To know many foolish fellows of my time has a sullen and silent mien procured the credit of prudence and capacity. Dignities and offices are of necessity conferred more by fortune than upon the account of merit. And we are often to blame to condemn kings when these are misplaced. On the contrary, 'Tis a wonder they should have so good luck where there is so little skill. And with that, dear listener, adieu.